There's a spirit here. A deeper need to understand why I am the way I am. No matter what you live through in your life, you are going to do great things. That's something that's holding me back that was passed on. What goes on with the mind and the body and the spirit. We're doing soul work. I was so busy. I was a director of Sacred Journeys program and uh, I ran five programs, six grants to run all of those programs. So I was just, just on the computer, just doing grants and so busy. Um, I'd have to say I was doing maybe anywhere from 10 to 12, maybe 14 hour days, just not giving my family any, anything of myself. Um, I remember Donna came in and I just saw a little hand come in the door and she turned my lights off. I knew it was her and she said, you've got to come with me. You need this. I wasn't healthy. I wasn't strong. I was really overweight. Um, all I did was I just sat there. And when you turn these lights off, it takes a while for them to go back on. I got up. I learned how to breathe. Welcome back to Remembering Resilience, a podcast on Native American resilience through and beyond trauma. I'm Susan Bolio, member of the Red Lake Nation in northern Minnesota and director of tribal projects at Minnesota Communities Caring for Children. And I'm Lindsay McMurrin, citizen of Leech Lake Nation in northern Minnesota and director of prevention initiatives for Minnesota Communities Caring for Children. In the last episode, we listened to stories and wisdom from Janice Bad Moccasin a holistic and traditional Dakota healer living in Minnesota, doing work with water protectors, practicing equine therapy, and forging a path practicing traditional and modern healing modalities as an Indigenous woman. Today we're going to turn to the story of Linda Eagle Speaker. I met Linda at a mind-body medicine training, a certification she obtained already well into her career as a therapist and healer. Linda has changed the life of countless women doing a wide range of healing and rehabilitation work, much of it with survivors of human trafficking. But to heal others, Linda also had to do some healing of her own. Our intern, Sierra Edwards, spoke with Linda in the summer of 2018. This episode is made of excerpts from that conversation and some of Lindsay and my reflections along the way. My name is, uh, my English name um, is Linda Eaglespeaker, Linda Ann Eaglespeaker. Um, my given name, when I say my given name, um, it's pronounced in Blackfoot, and it is Natwikanaki. When I say Natwikanaki, I am the holder of that name. I don't own it. I only own it while I'm on the earthly plane. And when you translate Natuikanaki, it means holy, medicine, shining woman. I am the seventh generation. I'm a ceremonial herbalist of the Blackfeet tribe. 
And uh, what that means is that if people are, are getting ready for a ceremony, whether it's a young girl's coming of age ceremony or maybe it's um, a ceremony for young men, maybe, maybe it's a sweat lodge. And so you're going to need certain medicines for that sweat lodge. So you might need sage to, to, for everyone to sit on. You might need cedar, cedar balls. You might need um, certain medicines that you're going to use to doctor people inside. You might need to have um, either cedar powder or sweet pine powder to put into the water. Um, and that's, that's what I do. That's my primary purpose for being here. So in this office right here, um, I do a little bit of combination of using my medicines, um, but I'll also um, I'm also certified and a faculty member for the Center of Mind Body Medicine in Washington D.C. Linda works at the Minnesota Indian Women's Resource Center, or MIWRC, an organization that has been serving Indigenous women in Minneapolis for three decades now. The MIWRC is a beacon of resilience and community in a highly segregated city where Native Americans can feel isolated from their support structures. Okay, we are sitting in a building in the city of Minneapolis, South Minneapolis, Phillips community. Phillips community is one of the poorest communities next to North Minneapolis. Um, Phillips community is where all the, the uh, Native people, they reside here. They kind of congregate here. Um, they live in a community that's about maybe three blocks from here called Little Earth. This agency was started 31 years ago. When you came here as a woman, there were no services for Native American people. And so these people put their money together and they opened a storefront. And it was a place that you can go into and you could find out uh, they were excellent resources. Um, where do you find diapers? You know, where do you find formula? How do I um, come here into the city and apply for housing or benefits or anything like that? Um, that's what they were just called a Minnesota Indian Women's Resource Center at that time. They just did resources. MIWRC later moved to a new building. Over time, they added a range of new services, including rehabilitation for survivors of trafficking and addiction, client advocacy, educational opportunities, and various support groups. It was at that location that Linda found them. Quite by accident, when I came here 16 years ago from my people, I couldn't find a job. I had my BSW. I had plans to finish my MSW. Um, I went to 13 interviews. I was getting discouraged. Just by chance, there's a building over here called Indian Health Board. I went in there for a, a job interview and I walked out and then I knew and remember what my mom told me so I went to my car and I got out my tobacco and I started to pray I was getting really sad for my people I wanted to go home and I put the tobacco up and I started to pray you know grandmothers help me where where's my purpose where do I go show me a sign help me 
And I just stood there and I prayed and I looked up and I saw this sign on this building. Minnesota Indian Women's Resource Center. My aha moment. I walked over. I walked over and I met this most beautiful elder, Ethel Wanden. She's gone now. Um, the way she greeted me, the way she welcomed me here, like, you know, come in, ha sit down, let me, let me get you some tea. Do you want a sandwich? Are you, everything okay? What are you doing? Oh, I'm looking for a job, but I'm really, really tired right now. She gave me beautiful tea. The way she welcomed me in, um, and she said, do you have copies of your resume? And I said, yeah, I have got one or two, but I got to find a place to copy them. She made me 20 copies. She gave me um, each one of the jobs that were open here. The following Thursday, I started work. In the 31 years since MIWRC was founded, it has become a testament to what space and resources dedicated to healing can do for our community. Linda is proud of what the center is able to offer. You have on the two top floors, Section 8 apartments. They're permanent, safe, stable housing. We have very rarely turnover in those apartments. You come down and you have office level, all offices are on, and accounting are on level two. You have all of our families that work with, with families in there. Um, you come down to this level right here, and this is our programming level. So right next door on that side, we still have a program called PSOP. PSOP is a program that's not anything to do with welfare. It's just a prevention program to help your families get stabilized. Uh, we have program uh, healing journeys right here. Um, we have a quiet room that's just across the hall. Um, when you go around this way, you can go, actually go into the treatment center. Beautiful. We're the only urban um, American Indian outpatient treatment program. You are here for equivalent of 10 months. It's like if you go to an out, outside this agency and you go to a treatment program, they'll say 30 days. Well, really, what can you accomplish in 30 days? So the women come here and they do a step-down program during that whole time. You'll be here for a whole week, then you step down to three days, and you step down to one day, and then you graduate out of the program. Plus, you have this whole wraparound services to help you. It's a beautiful, beautiful process. It's, it's just... The building itself, the structure itself, um, the gardens that are outside, um, there's a spirit here, female, very strong, powerful spirit that keeps this building going, that keeps the funding here, that takes care of her gardens. If we take care of her gardens, she takes care of us.
when I told you earlier that I was um, I was a supervisor, I was a director of the Sacred Journey program. But the thing I didn't tell you is that, um, oh my, I think I was like 342 pounds. Um, when I first started working here, I would actually stop at the donut store. And I would get a dozen donuts. I would um, buy myself a large Pepsi. I'd buy four of them to get me through the day. By the time I got to work, I'd eaten all of the donuts. And I would come into my office and I would do my work, but I'd be shooting Pepsis back. I could drink a whole bottle just by myself. Plus all the candy. I had a one of my office drawers I'd open up would be just full of candy and candy bars. But what ended up I was a type two diabetic was a type two diabetic. Um I took um twelve hundred milligrams of metaformin just to balance out my sugars. Um I had a booster called Lipitor and that would that would boost it so that my body would be able to handle it. Um, I took another booster called Actos. Um, all total, I was on eight different medications just for diabetes. I was losing the sensitivity in my feet. Um, I couldn't even fit into my shoes. I had really, really problems walking just to carry the weight of my body. And I'd have to plan going to the bathroom. Because it took me so long to get to the bathroom. And then so long to get back. So I'd actually wait. Um, so that was putting strain on my kidneys as well. Wow. <sighs> I couldn't even walk. But after I went to started practicing mind-body medicine, started breathing properly, I took a course called um, Food is Medicine through the center. Um, it was a course that was just phenomenal. Uh, I came back, I changed doctors, I changed practitioners completely. I wanted somebody that was more holistic, uh, did complete workup of my body. Um, she said, well, first of all, there's two medicines, you don't need me to even be on them. She took them away. And then she sent me to a nutritionist, um, who I still see. I think the greatest things I did learning there at Food is Medicine is I no more pop, no more sugars. So that candy drawer, oh, my coworkers loved it. I actually went through a withdrawal. My body went through a withdrawal, uh, almost like an addiction, because I was addicted to the sugar and the salt. I immediately, within the first one, two, three, three and a half months, I dropped 32 pounds without even exercising. That's because I'm not drinking pop or eating candy or eating desserts. But my doctor is the kind of doctor that says, Linda, I want you to do this gradually. So there's these little cans of Pepsi that you can buy that are about this big. She said, drink one of those. I want you to go and have a fabulous dessert, very decadent, the best that you can, once a month. Even now, I've lost uh, close to 148 pounds. 
Um, three months ago, I walked into my doctor's office. My A1Cs, everything flatlined. She says, I have to run these tests again just to make sure that it is you. <laughs> she said, you have been dropping weight, healthy weight. So over that three-year period, I dropped 148 pounds, and I'm still going down. But when I walked into that office, she just said, Linda, you know I'm going to uh, drop your metformin. You don't need metformin. You don't need Lipitor. You don't need Actos. You don't need this. You don't need that. I will leave you on your high blood pressure medication at the lowest level, and that'll be the next to go. I drink eight glasses of water. That's a very big glass. My coworker teases me all the time. The first thing I do in the morning is instead of going for anything, I go and get water. That's all that I drink, because that's all that my body needs is water, and it, and it doesn't crave sugar anymore. I can actually see my shoes. I can fit in my shoes. I can buy new shoes. <laughs> I don't have that um, the problem of walking in and saying, do you have a 3X? Because I, I have that habit now of going in and going into the large women's clothes. And they'll come in and they'll say, you're in the wrong department. I think mind-body medicine really, really changed my life physically, emotionally. I don't think I would have been in that place if I'd still been doing what I was doing without mind-body medicine. Yeah, I'm just getting ready to teach a class on uh, weight reduction through mind-body medicine, and then just show them show them results that you go all the way down through it. Yeah. I met. Linda through mind body medicine. I think her story speaks to the incredible power of the mind and the ability of the mind and the spirit to heal the body. One of the ways that we are now understanding the connection between trauma and the body is how the stress response, when it's constantly turned on, it turns on proteins and things in the body that can trigger disease. So when you think about diseases like heart disease, and diabetes, they are very much stress response diseases, as are a lot of autoimmune diseases. So in our communities, diabetes is very much, it's very, very prevalent. And one of the things that we're starting to see now as sort of a repercussion of that, when people have diabetes and their diabetes isn't managed well, it can impact their kidneys and shut their kidneys down. And so now there are literally renal clinics going up on reservations because so many people have renal disease and their kidneys are shut down because of the diabetes. So now they have to go two, three times a week and get dialyzed to clean their blood so that they can live. And anybody that's ever, that knows anything about dialysis knows that it is a hard, it, it's a hard life. And it's not uncommon to see renal clinics in our communities. And we, you know, we're like a small population. And it's not, just, it's not just adults that are having kidney failure now. It's because our kids are getting diabetes younger and younger, then their kidneys are shutting down when they're in their 20s or their 30s, right? As opposed to typically you would, you know, dialysis, you would think it's older people. But it's, um, it's really, really sad. I mean, my heart just breaks when I think about it. Mm -hmm.
Linda's story is so powerful because a lot of times when people get a diagnosis, it's like they think of it as like a life sentence. It becomes a sort of a thing that they take on and it becomes something that they see themselves through the lens of that disease or illness or whatever it is. And so for Linda to have gotten that diagnosis and say, you know what, I'm not going to live my life as if this is who I am. I think it, for me, it gives a lot of hope that even though right now in our communities, diabetes is prevalent and heart disease and all of these things, they, they can be reversible. They are not a life sentence. And so that's why I think her story is so powerful because it shows that the power we have to heal ourselves. I wish that more people understood that. Yes, this idea that we as healers need to pay attention to the healing work of our own. It is inspiring to hear another woman's success story and being able to balance all of the demands that come along with doing this type of work and that it's possible to be on this healing journey of our own as we come alongside our communities and doing this work as well. When the term self-care comes into a conversation, I think there is a common misconception that we're talking about bubble baths and trips to the spa, uh, when in all actuality, we're talking about sustaining ourselves, doing our own healing work, so that we can then give back to our communities. For many Indigenous people, the idea of self-care may invoke uh, a selfishness that is really contrary to who we are as a people. And I believe strongly that part of this work is challenging that misconception and remembering that when we do our self-care work, then we are even more effective to come alongside our families, to come alongside our communities, to do the healing work that they need as well. Linda has channeled, maybe even amplified, the good energy from her own healing back into healing others. Now she's a senior member of the MIWRC community and carrying on the tradition that made it her professional home. I come here because I know that I'm going to be doing good for my people in this community. Every single, every single hour, there's a young woman or an older woman or an elder walking through the door. And she received the same treatment that I received when I first came here. We always have elders as receptionists. And the elder's going to greet you. And how are you doing? Do you want water? Do you want tea? Is there something I can help you with? They know the community really, really well. I've come full circle. And now I'm in my program right here. My ceremonial elder in residence program. And I got to write my own job description. <laughs> Very cool. If you were going to come and visit me, I would ask you in the first hour how you're feeling. And so I'll use my medicines and I'll brew certain teas for you. And then we'll smudge, we'll pray, and we'll visit for an hour. Um, after that, I'm going to ask you to come back and we're going to make an appointment 
for four uh, appointments, two hours each. You are the one that's going to choose that time to come. And when you come in here, we sit side by side, not facing each other. I'll use medicines. I'll put an altar down in front of us. And I'll instruct you to let you know that those medicines belong to you. Whenever you feel the need to use them, whether it's sweetgrass, sage, juniper, anything that's on that altar, you reach down when you need it and you light it. I use that medicines. I'll bring you into a deep, deep, deep meditative state. Now we teach you how to breathe properly. If a young woman and a mother come to me and they want to go through and they've never understood their Ojibwe and they don't know what a berry fast is. I work with 47 elders all over the state, both urban and rural. Um, so if, let's say if they are Ojibwe, um, I can go to, depending upon the ceremony, I can, I can go to um, 12 elders and sit down and I'll invite the young lady to come with her mom. Um, we've heard that we fast, but this is her first time. So my job is to take the mom and the daughter, connect them with the elders. I'm just a conduit to get them there. I take care of everything that she needs. So if she needs ceremonial clothes, we make them. Um, if she, she needs transportation, if the ceremony is way up in Red Lake or White Earth or Boys Fort or Grand Portage, then we take care of the transportation and the hotel where she's going to stay. Um, I try to go to uh, as many ceremonies as I can with them. One of the unfortunate legacies of historical trauma is that it has left many of us disconnected from our culture. The powerful work that Linda does along with MIWRC is about reconnection, about a place where we can reconnect with our traditions, our cultures, uh, and that, that belonging is such an important piece of this healing work. I think for my office, the longest distance was Oklahoma. A young girl came in here with her worker and I said, if you could do anything that you wanted in your life, what you want? What would you want to do? If I could snap my finger like that, and you could do something, what would it be? I need a name. I've been in foster care all my life. I'm just getting ready to age out. But I need a name. Where are you from? I'm. I know my dad is Sack and Fox, and he's from Oakland. I was just jotting down information. My job is to call the tribe, talk to the uh, native liaison worker who puts me in touch with the elders advisory council, who puts me in touch with the ceremonial elders and introduces her. They found her family. They called us back. Her dad was still down there. So was her grandma. Get her ready to go. Her foster mom brought her there. I paid for them. I found out what she needed for the ceremony, so we made skirts. And that's the process of helping make those skirts. Um, 
The last thing that she needed for the ceremony, which I couldn't help her with, is she needed a turkey. I asked the elders, like, what kind of turkey? Uh, and she's going to go through a two-day fast and a ceremony, and she's going to get her name. Changed her life. She was trying to decide, what am I going to do? I applied for college, but I don't know. No one's ever gone to college. But when she came back, she had her name. She was stronger. She left for University of Minnesota Morris. And I helped her just to get strong, just to get there. That's what we do here. We're a quiet agency, but we, we rock the house. <laughs> yep. So traditionally, it's my understanding that as Anishinaabe or Ojibwe people, when we come into this world, the first spirit name is given right away. In the naming process, you have a namer and you have Wa'as who... I guess in a way are sort of like godparents or like people who will support that young person throughout their life. That spirit name is important because it's the language the spirits speak. Then when you're praying, you use that name, identifying who you are, and then they're like, the managers are like, oh, this is so-and-so, so then they know who you are. Um, so that's why that name is really important. One of the things about receiving a name is that the name... The, the person who names you typically, from what I was told, has a vision or they are they have a dream and they get the name from the spirits in that dream or that vision. And then they, the spirits say, this person is, and then they give the name. And so then what it does is it grounds the individual in sort of the essence of who they are and how they connect to the larger community. Relationships matter. Connection matters. Belonging matters. These are all elements that were stolen from us in the eras of historical trauma that our Indigenous communities endured. The idea that Linda and others in our communities are able to reverse that story, to be able to see the impact it has on individuals and the collective in our communities is what this work is really about. The one story that really, really sticks out in my mind, I'll call her Christy. Um, Christy arrived here when I was in my third year of mind body medicine. She was a survivor. She was 16 years of age. Um, she'd been trafficked in her life since the age of six. Um, she knew no other life at all, except being a captive, being a victim, uh, no value in herself. Um, and one day her, her case manager walked in with her, introduced her to me. She was really, really shy, but so broken and, and her heart was just... She was no longer a, 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 a typical 16-year-old. In her short life, she'd seen so much and experienced so much. Um, I started working with her just closely. Um, when you're that age and you've been a survivor of the streets, you have no idea what safe touch means. 
very careful not to reach out and, and, and touch them, become really, really um, shocked and nervous. And I just remember that, that first time she came in here, she said, I feel more comfortable on the floor. So I have a yoga pad. I put the yoga pad down and I put a pillow down there. Um, I brought her through some soft belly breathing. Um, I brought her into guided imagery. Um, brought her into what they call safe place. In your own mind, we each have a place that we go to. I worked with her um, one, two, six, seven, eight sessions. I got a call from the Ramsey County Attorney's Office. Um, we can't get anything out of Christy. She won't talk. We know that she's gone through horrific experiences where we found her. Um, can you help us? So I went to her and I asked her, um, they want to interview you. I'm going to um, help you. And so what I did is I brought her in. Um, we imagined that we were in the courtroom, um, that her abusers were sitting across from her. They were notorious in Ramsey County for hurting young girls. And the county wanted to bring them down. But they needed Christie's testimony. And I worked with her really, really closely. I finally reached the point where she broke. It was, it was just, I can't explain it. It was just like this, like she just kind of went, and she released. I spent the next four hours with her while she cried. And she told me, And I said, are you ready? I'm going to be with you. And we went. We went several days in a row. Um, but I would stop them and I'd say, um, there's too much right now. Um, you need to give me a few moments with her. And then we went into deep breathing. We went into deep, deep meditation. And then we'd bring her back out again. And then we'd begin again with the county attorneys. When we were done, there was 126 pages of her testimony, word for word. Very descriptive. She named names. She named places where she was brought. She named people that she had been brought to. Um, they transcribed all of those. And then I got to prepare her for court. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be in the back. Just look at me. Look at me. Don't look at anybody else. What I did is I trained her to look at an object. In this case, in the back of the courtroom was a red box. It was a fire pulled down for fire. I said, you look just at that box. You don't look this way, that way, anyway. I'm going to be right below that box. We went through that whole court together. What a courageous young lady. In the state of Minnesota, 
with mind-body medicine, we were able to get the longest sentences for anyone. She brought an entire family down. That was years ago. And then I get this call. I'll never forget it. Grandma, it's me. It's Christy. I'm graduating. University of Minnesota Morris in tribal governance. I'll never forget her. Can you come, Grandma? I just need to see you. Then I know that I've I've left it all behind. So I'm on my way. I sat up in the rafters way up there and looked down, I could see. She waved. And I went to the native grad. We didn't have to say words to each other. I walked in, I sat down, and as they started calling them up, I got up and I stood against the wall. And I looked at her and I went like, like I'm breaking a chain. And I did it four times. She stirred, stared right at me. You broke the poverty chain by doing that. You broke the intergenerational prostitution chain that your grandmother started and your mother and your aunts. Your children will never be prostituted. You broke the education chain. No one has been educated like you. You broke the addiction chain because they had her addicted to heroin. But all of that, when I sit here and I think about it, now she's working for a tribe in their tribal government's office has her degree now in tribal governance, working on her master's now. It's possible if you believe in them strongly enough and you love them like your own. That's my granddaughter. Her family started gathering around her and then I walked out. She came running. Grandma, Grandma. We just hugged each other for the longest time and I said, each one of your life successes, you call me. Make sure you call me when you have a baby. That's the last thing I said to her. A lot of successes like that. That's why I stay here. I'm going into my 16th year. But right now I get calls from everywhere. Grandmom graduating. University of Minnesota Morris. Grandma, I'm graduating, Augsburg. Grandma, I'm graduating, University of Minnesota. Can you come? Incredible to be able to bring them from being dirt poor, being abused and sold as a an object, not being respected as a human being, but teaching them through that whole process that no matter what you live through in your life, you are gonna do great things. You're gonna accomplish great things. 
Believe in yourself. I believe in you. You're going to have a good night. We want to thank Linda Eagle Speaker for sharing her story with us and for all the work she does in the community. This has been episode six of Remembering Resilience, a podcast on Native resilience through and beyond trauma. Thank you for joining us as we explore concepts, science, history, culture, stories, and practices that we are working with as we seek to shape a future for our children and our grandchildren that is defined not by what we have suffered, but what we have overcome. you just heard is from Sean Trottier, a Standing Rock Sioux and Turtle Mountain Chippewa artist and music producer from Spirit Lake Nation, who contributed original music for this episode. We want to extend a thank you to him and the other Native artists that contributed music to this episode, including Thomas X, Wade Fernandez, Leah Lem and Molecular Machine, and the Red Tree Singers. Inspiration for this series comes from a growing number of Indigenous people and allies who are working to address resilience in the Native community. This includes podcast hosts, Susan Bolio, David Knoyer, and Lindsay McMurrin, as well as the other voices they gathered for this series, with the help of intern Sierra Edwards. For this episode, we want to especially thank Linda Eagle Speaker for generously sharing both her story and her wisdom with us. Sadie Lutmer acted as coordinating producer on this episode, with sound design and additional instrumentals by Kaylin Keir. This series was supported by staff at Minnesota Communities Caring for Children, and funded by the Blue Cross Blue Shield Center for Prevention. For more information, visit the podcast webpage at rememberingresilience.home.blog.